Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. The more time you spend in the presence of death, the less you fear it. Your life will be greatly enhanced by spending time with dying people, even though you've been taught to avoid it. Death is not the enemy. Snakes are. <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. Can't save anyone if you die. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. You want to call me a whore? No, I call you. And need to talk about more. So I can afford such luxuries as rent and antibiotics. I'm Anna Sale. And this week, we're sharing a conversation I recently had live on stage with writer Anne Lamott as part of the Reimagine End of Life Festival. I think you're going to like it. During her 40-year career, Anne has written many best-selling books about death and grief, addiction and recovery, parenthood and family, as well as her impulse to jump when she's in high places. We talk about that in the second half if you want to skip it. Anne was born and raised in the Bay Area and lives there now. So we were on stage in front of a hometown crowd in downtown San Francisco. So you have been writing about death uh, for many years, going back to your first novel that you published when you were 25 called Hard Laughter, which is such a great title. Um, But I want to ask you about something that has changed, that is new in your life this year when you got married for the first time at 65. How much were you thinking about death when you made that decision to get married at this point in your life? Um, Well, I had decided that my husband-to-be, Neil, was actually after my Medicare payments. (laughs) And and very typically, if you're an, an older woman, um, as a younger man, my Neil's a little bit younger, will prey on younger women, on older women who are going to get Medicare, and uh, and of course Kaiser Senior Advantage, <laughs> and um, so I thought there was about a 50-50 chance that he would, um, and you see this in the paper all the time. They're always young men. They have big eyes. They're always called puppy-eyed, and um, and so I thought. But I thought, well, 50-50, I'll take it, you know? <laughs> and, um, and it's so amazing to know that no matter what happens to me, Neil will walk me through that. And um, no matter what happens for Neil, if I'm alive, I will walk him through that. And it's an amazing feeling of, of safety and being able to let go a little, do that. I call it the sacrament of plop. 
<laughs> you know, where you go, oh. and it's amazing. But I didn't really think about death except for my possible, you know, him killing me or, um, <laughs> or keeping me, like sedating me and keeping me hostage while he cashed my Medicare checks. <laughs> You, there was a wonderful wedding announcement in the New York Times, and there was a line that stuck out to me, written by the reporter. This isn't a quote. She said in the paper of record, she is afraid of almost everything, whereas he's afraid of almost nothing. Yeah. And it's not a way I think of you as being afraid of almost everything. Does that feel accurate? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just came this way. You know, God made me a certain way, and the fact that all these things have been my destiny I was a very sensitive child and in the 50s that was something that was very shaming you know there was a book called the highly sensitive child which was a handbook for your parents to bear having to have you as one of their children <laughs> and you know what it means to be sensitive it means you're paying attention it means you see the National Geographic and you see what's happening in India. You see children with flies on their eyes. You see what's going on and it grieves you. Your heart is open to it. You're more permeable. God, I, grew, well, I had this kinky, frizzy hair. I grew up having this be kind of what defined me. And the other thing, I mean, just being bullied constantly, having people throw stuff at me, boys, and then having people say, you've got to get a thicker skin. Like, if you had a thicker skin, we would be happier that you're here because you wouldn't cry about really sad things. But I raised my boy to cry about really sad things. The world is an incredibly hard and sad place. And, uh, and so, but to be able to say it, that's why it's so incredible to talk about death out loud because the terror of it comes from not being able to say it, to say it actually happens, I've noticed it, and it sucks. Well, there's a beautiful quote also in the New York Times from 25 years ago uh. where you were called a writer who has perfected the art of saying the unsayable. Mm. And as you just said, that's not a, a skill that was polished when you were a young girl. Yeah. Um, when you thought about sitting down and what you wanted to achieve with the words you were going to put out in the world, was that your objective, to say what was not being said? No, not really. I mean, I didn't mean to... I didn't want to, you know, push the envelope intentionally for the sake of pushing the envelope. It's just even as a, a child and a teenager, I was just starved for truth and there's just so little truth in the world and so if someone tells you um, truth and and I, it you know just to use a cliched word it resonates it's like this little Dr. Seuss creature inside of you going oh my god and and um, it's so it, it's so enlivening it's medicine and, um, but it starts by saying these things that you weren't supposed to say. Like when I wrote um, the baby book, you know which one? Mm -hmm. Operating I mean, Instructions. Operating Instructions. Very important to me, yes. Um, 
no one had mentioned to me that it, I was a single mother with no money, and it was a nightmare. I, I, I was 35, I was older, when I had a baby, and I had never been able to be angry before. I had never been angry before. I had never raised my voice, because in the 50s, women were exiled. If a woman became angry, she was a little bit tense because her husband was having affairs, and she expressed this. They called her a witch. They used to kill us for that, right? for being emotional, and so I had never raised my voice and I had a baby, and I just felt crazy, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember writing in one, of the, in one of the entries in Operating Instructions, you know, that he'd fallen asleep and I brushed my teeth. And before that I thought, gee, that sounds like a lot of energy. But I had, <laughs> he'd fallen asleep for a minute and I'd run in and brush my teeth, which is new lease on life, right? It's like God has reached down and touched you. <laughs> And, um, and then he woke up again, and I wrote, oh, God, he's raised his loathsome reptilian head again. <laughs> and, um, and there wasn't a mother on earth that said, how can you say that? You know, every single mother said, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. You know? And this one night when he was just under a month, I mean, he's an eight-pound person, it occurred to me that I could just put him outside for the night, you know? <laughs> Because, and, but I'd bundle him up really carefully, and you know, I wouldn't. I put him in a basket. He wouldn't be rolling around and stuff, and he'd be warm. And I and I thought any mother I said that to would understand it, mm -hmm. um, because you're going to die of being as tired. Yes. As no one has mentioned, and so when I started mentioning this, people said, "Thank you. I know what you're talking about," and they said it's such a relief. Such relief someone said it out loud. Well, also in that first year of parenthood, you write in that book about losing your best friend mm -hmm. to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And you, you sat with her as she was dying. Mm -hmm. You sat with your father as he was dying mm -hmm. when you were in your 20s. Mm -hmm. You've sat with friends since who are dying. You've, you talk about hospice and what it is to show up. You say, show up, listen, nod is what you do with the dying, which I love. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed anything about what it is to sit with someone who is dying when you have been at such different life phases? Has it felt different? Um, I got birth coached by hospice, and what they and this is let's see, I was twenty. It was I was twenty three, so that's forty two years ago. And what they said was, we're going to teach you how to be stay very real in this so that your father has company. He had, brain, he had a melanoma that had metastasized to his brain. And it's going to be very, very scary a lot of the time, but you'll never be alone. And whatever comes up, we've seen it before, and we will help you walk through it. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And, um, and when he died, they taught us to bathe the body. They taught us that these bodies are so precious to us that we bathe them, we honor them. You don't forget socks, right? When you dress a person who has just died, their feet might get cold. And they taught me because they helped me feel safe in the kind of the labor pains of losing my father that uh, they taught me I was gonna never get over it, which no one had said. You know, and in America, there's like a grid, a grieving grid. And if you lose a, spa a child, you can grieve for like 
four to five years, I think. If you lose a spouse, 18 months. Brother, sister, you know? It's like, get on with it. Because this is about forward motion. America is about forward motion. And if you stop moving forward, you're going to fall into the abyss. But if someone dies, you can't live without you. are supposed to fall into the abyss. You know, and it's pretty abysmal. But what hospice says, what the community says is, you need to fall into the abyss. It's appropriate. Mm. And we will climb down in it with you. Mm. And we will get you tea. And they promise. And hospice taught me that... Um, that there was truth that wasn't bumper stickers and that I was going to really probably never get over my father and I wasn't particularly supposed to, but at some point I would be able able to bear it. And at some point what I didn't know was that at some point I would feel him again and he'd be alive for me again. And that's always what I've said to people who are with others that are dying. I've always said, you sit there and that you... Um, listen and you don't run and you help them savor what's working and you help them savor the feel of a hand on their skin and you help them savor the view out the window and if they don't feel like savoring if they don't want any of it you help them feel really angry about the hand they got dealt You know, I think the bottom line is it sucks and I hate it. And it's holy. Coming up, after a lifetime of losing other people, Anne tells me how she's thinking about her own death. I mean, I'm a Christian, so I I basically see death as a pretty significant change of address. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. I want to ask you about your own mortality. And and it's something else you write about in almost everything, your your newest book. You write early on in the book about um, a feeling you have had your entire life when you're in high spaces. Do you want to describe what that feeling is? Oh, yeah. It's funny because I'm a really positive and optimistic person in a slightly cranky way. And I absolutely believe in Jesus and the kingdom and eternal life and so on and so forth. And yet, my entire life, when I've been in high places, I felt like jumping because I find it exhausting here. And, um, and I still do. And I have a brilliant, brilliant psychiatrist who, <laughs> who told me, who made me have a commitment with him that if, when I felt this, I would tell whoever I was with, I'm having it again. Wait, so explain to me 
describe to me how that can happen in the real world. When you're with someone, all of a sudden you're going up in a glass elevator. What do you say? If I'm going up, well, in a glass elevator, I wouldn't wait to be able to get to the top so I could look down and kind of imagine jumping, right? And because I, I, I believe that when the minute that we die, we're caught in the arms of God. I believe people, I just 100% believe that. And so um, it doesn't feel suicidal to me. It feels, um, so I have a psychiatrist because it doesn't, it, it just, I, I mean, I remember we, our dentist was at the 450 Sutter building and, um, in San Francisco and it was on the 14th floor and that, this is in the 50s and 60s when that windows opened. Do any of you remember that? Mm -hmm. When you could go and open windows and I would feel this inexorable pull to As go look out the window and to jump. But I've also, all truth is a paradox, all truth. I love being alive. I love it. And I always had incredible friends that were always my great advantage here. And, um, and so I don't know how to explain it except that um, people that are, um, it's kind of like, well, I, the reason I'm supposed to tell someone was because it kind of creates a trance for me. And I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic in recovery. I have eating at disorder. I have basically every single disorder you can have, except for gambling, which I don't get. <laughs> but because it just really hurts my feelings when I lose money in a casino or something. And, um, and I also get into kind of a trance when I'm at a, a money-changing machine, and I get the four quarters out. I feel lifted. And, um, and to, so the, my work here, I feel is to love this ordinary dumb day and to keep breaking the trance. Now I, would make a, I can make a case that the great trance, the great fear we have is the fear of death. And so that if you begin to draw near to it and befriend it and get to become familiar with it, that it takes away, it doesn't take away, but it changes, it transforms. It does some sort of alchemy with all fear if you can just start to deal with this. But so, anyway, I just want to say, when I, I was at a Coptic giving some sermons in Egypt five or six years ago, and I'd made this deal with my psychiatrist that I would tell whoever I was with that I, it was crossing my mind that I wanted to jump. And, um, and so I was with a minister, and we were very, 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 very high up, and I said, um, I have to tell you something. Whenever I'm very, very high up, I just think about jumping. And he went, oh, who doesn't? <laughs> and it was so incredible because it's hard. If you're a thinking, feeling, sensitive person who allows themselves to have vulnerability and to be permeable, of course you think that. Of course, you just don't want a lot more loss. It's like, I'm good on loss, right? I feel like, thank you, I'm good. <laughs> How have you found the um, necessary communication of end-of-life planning? Oh, my God. You know, I just did that. I just did a will um, because that's what you do at 65. You get the Kaiser Senior Advantage, and you do a will. And so for like a month, I've been discussing my impending death and incapacitation. 
And at what level of incapacitation do I need, give Neil a break <laughs> and voluntarily go into the home? And so I've been just actually having that in my face. And I can honestly say that um, I know I will die and um, it doesn't scare me. I don't want to die right away. I mean, I've only been married six months. I should get like, <laughs> see, you should get a year out of this thing. I mean, I lost six pounds for the wedding. And the, um, but uh, I don't want to die. I love, love, love life. I love my work. I feel like I have, I have a mission. I have a mission. I, I sit with a lot of people who are dying. I get summoned. Uh, and I help sober alcohol, I help young alcoholics stay sober for that day. And so I have work I want to do um, in that capacity. It's not, you know, I'm placed totally replaceable, you know, probably not to Neil, but he's um, so crazy about me. But, um, <laughs> but I'm replaceable and, um, and I hope that I get to live to see my grandchild, for it not to devastate him. But I don't have any fear of death. I really, I've just seen so many people die and they have all passed with heroism and some awful days, but with heroism and humor and laughter. And laughter is about as sacred as it gets. Laughter is carbonated holiness. And I've seen every single person pass with grace and grace bats last. One more question for you, and that is as someone who has processed loss and pain through, so much through words, when you have had moments where you felt in that abyss and words weren't doing it for you, what, what has helped when words didn't work? Crying in rage, crying in rage. You pick up the 200-pound phone and you call someone and you say, I hate everything in all of life. And no one ever says, oh, come on, you're supposed to, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're this. No one, they say, I'm so glad you called. Come on, do you want to shop? <laughs> so, you know, do you want to go get a whole lot of candy and, and shop? And, or they'll say, do you want to come over? And, and, um, and it's funny because... I'm very, very angry. And I didn't notice that because I'm so religious. I'm such a good person. I'm mostly really sweet in the world. And like, you know, most you're raised to be if you're a woman. I mean, if you're not, you're going to be exiled. And, um, and to do the anger with a safe person, to say, I'm, I'm actually so angry that I think I could be having some kind of breakdown. And I have been able to say and say, I'm so angry. I'm so angry that these that my friend Island died. I'm so mad. I'm so mad my friend Janine's son may die. I'm so mad. I don't get it. And 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 I have found people that can let me do the rage in a really healthy, healing, life-giving way. Please join me in thanking Anne. Thank Lamont. you, thank you. Thank you. That's Anne Lamott speaking with me live on stage at the Reimagine End of Life Festival in San Francisco. Her most recent book is called Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. If you're considering suicide or if you have a loved one who you think might be, 
please ask for help. The Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Or, like Anne, tell someone you trust who's close by. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our email is deathsexmoney at WNYC.org. Anne's son is now 30. And even though she's taught him not to fear death, he's learned there are parts of her aging that he can leverage. My son Sam, whenever he's mad, looks up on the internet this place called A Place for Mom. You know, and he'll say, oh, I think you like this place. I'll let you have a little animal. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 